0: before we, we launch into the, the message for tonight, just you know, a couple of ways that we are uh, accommodating the, the staff needs you know, for the church. So we're welcoming Caitlin Stellman. So you guys can all give Caitlin Stellman some applause. She is training right now with Christy, and so she's the new administration coordinator. So, uh, and then also, if you can give a rousing a uh, round of applause Nick O'Cannon's going to be working as a service coordinator helping to make these weekend services happen on the weekend so you can cheer for Nick So he's not he's going to continue as a as a school teacher but really stepping into more of a of a formal role of just being the person on site on the weekends it was like tonight's a perfect example of why you need someone like that we rolled up right the the water is shut off to the building because someone was hanging something in a in a closet and knocked a nail through a copper pipe so water was spewing out and that was just yeah so those are the nights you need someone that you can go to right and then they just help make it happen so we're excited about that and then we've brought somebody uh who uh, goes to uh, christian life center uh, holly Eamon is going to be doing the bookkeeping so we've had to go out and find all of these people to do the things that when, you know christy Rogers did for us so we're excited about this new season that we're entering into as a church and uh, and as Amanda said too that not just our church collectively but you for you individually that there should be a sense of expectation for what God wants to do in your life. And that's part of this sermon series that we're in, Living in the Gap. They're going to throw that first slide up there, is that that we together as a church want to dream a God-sized dream. And that's what we've been digging around in together Uh, as a church since our anniversary service in January, that we're going to dream a God-sized dream together, a Psalm 124 existence out on the wire, living in the gap. And that sentiment kind of comes from Psalm 124, one and two, that says, if the Lord had not been on our side, We don't want to accomplish something that we could just do if we tried a little bit harder. We want to do something that's going to bring about the result of a divine outcome. It was great because Caitlin was out of town this past week. She was in in Washington, the west coast Washington, and she went to visit a church while she was there. And the pastor got up and started talking, and one of the first things that came out of his mouth is, as a church, we're going to dream a God-sized dream. So she has all these notes, right, from the, the, the sermon from a, a week ago. And, and so he's, he's just preaching right out of the notes, right? And, and so she shows them to her friend that she's with, and her friend says, where did you get those, you know? God, whether it's here, Washington, we met with some missionaries last night we're going to be talking about from China, he wants his people to dream a God-sized dream because he's a God-sized God. He's got big dreams in his heart and our hearts need to get bigger because of what he wants to do through us and in us and in the communities in which we live. He's going to do that in your life and certainly he's going to do that through this church. We've got an appetite for it. One of the verses that we've been digging around together is Daniel eleven thirty-two. It says, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And we were digging around in that word know for the last couple of weeks. You can get that off the podcast. I was at the gym this week. I'm on the elliptical, right, because that's what old men do, right? We're on the elliptical. All the young people are sprinting it out on the treadmill on the 10 incline at, you know, the speed of eight. And so that's not me. I'm there just kind of plugging away. It works for me. And so I'm listening to a podcast from uh, Willow Creek Community Church up in uh, just outside of Chicago, Illinois. And the teaching pastor there, Darren Whitehead, is in a series. If you're looking for a good series to listen to, maybe while you're working out or going for walks, he's doing a series on everybody should have a life first. Everybody should have a verse that you, you pick and it might change in different seasons of life that, that you're in. But this was his life verse and he was talking about, I was like, come on, that's a great verse for our church. What we're talking about for this series of living in the gap that, Lord, this is out of Habakkuk 3.2. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in all of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. Come on, in our time, make them known. We have a heart for that. We read about the incredible things that he's done throughout history. We're saying, God, come on in our time, in our lifetime, in our city, in our families, in our community, and in our neighborhood. That's what this idea of living in the gap is all about. Okay, you want to do some giveaways? How about, how about to our teenagers? Can we do that? All right, we got some Starbucks gift cards, yes. Nothing up my sleeve, but a few things in my pocket. All right, so last week we talked about what exploits are not necessarily great exploits, don't necessarily mean fill in the blank. Who's a teenager who can answer that question for me? Come on, anybody? No, wow. All right, boo the youth, boo, go ahead, boo them. Right? There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ, but there is often at the City Life Church. Oh, 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 somebody, Abby. Oh, she had to dig in her notes. We like notes. Abby, exploits are not. Yes, exploits are not historical fame. Come on, Starbucks, gift card for Abby Rogers. Great exploits doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get discovered or your name's going to get recorded in a history book. We talked about the books of heaven, Psalm 139, that great exploits, that might be your story, but for most of us, our fame is going to be heavenly notoriety, that you fulfill your purpose in life. We talked about that last week. All right, I need my clicker. All right. We'll, st- we'll stay with the youth since they're still tracking. All right, we need to feel what for God if we're going to do great exploits? Oh, Derek, okay, family favoritism right here. Derek, we've got to do what? Feel a deep love. All right, let's pass that down to Derek. Come on, that's right. So that's the last two weeks if you want to catch that on the podcast. that if we're going to do great exploits with God, we need to feel a deep love for him. All right, here's here's my my last question. All right. Who in the Bible has been our example? It's not Jesus. Usually that's a safe answer, but it's not this time. So who's been our example, Tara? Peter, yes, a reluctant Peter, but she got it. Come on, come on, give Tara some applause. All right, I have one extra. I'm going to give this one to Kevin Garcia because he's the greenest person in the room. So come on, give it up. So I was, I was, okay, come on, we got some time. I was, I was ironing our clothes for, uh, for church. I'm just throwing out that to brag. I was ironing our clothes. Vanessa wasn't here. So Ethan brings in his shirt, and uh, I said, Ethan, you know, because he's wearing a green shirt. It's got a big clover on it. So did you know that it was St. Patrick's Day? And he looked at me like, why would I be wearing a shirt like that to church if it wasn't St. Patrick's Day, right? So clearly he was up to speed. I used green on my name tag, but Kevin said that didn't count. So. But even though he condemned me, I demonstrated grace to him by giving him something. John 21, 1 through 17. All right, we're, this, is, this is a little bit harder giveaway, but this one's a little bit nicer of a giveaway. Laura Nowotny, our very own, wrote a book. Come on. The Dragonfly Key. She had a book signing at Heaven and Earth here in Newport News, so this is a giveaway for that. So somebody who could be bold enough to give me a brief synopsis of what happened in John 21, 1 through 17 that we've been talking about for the last two weeks. Anybody bold enough? Come on. It's signed, so you're going to get... Nathaniel's raising his hand. So one day, right, Nathaniel's going to be selling this on eBay. He's got a Laura Nawatny original. All right, so Nathaniel, a brief update on what you find in this text, in the story. That's when Jesus prays for his disciples. No. That's John 17, so it's a little bit tricky. It's a little bit tricky. Come on, it takes courage to volunteer at the City Life Church. Somebody else, anybody else? Oh, come on, Chrissy's going to try, she's going to do it. Nathaniel answered it wrong on purpose because he knew somebody else needed to do it. He has breakfast on the beach with his disciples. Yes, he has breakfast on the beach with his disciples. That's the story where he restores Peter, right? Peter betrays Christ three times when Jesus is being arrested and tried. And so we've been digging around in that story, what happened in that exchange, in that conversation. And so we're going to stay in this text a little bit, and we're going to find there's, there's more in here for us in this series i'm going to hone in on verses 3 through 6 and verse 11 i kid you not for the last couple of weeks when we were sitting here reading through that text together every time i got to the highlighted portions right here it was as though that there was a magnifying glass passed over that part and those words just got really big and i knew That was the holy spirit saying to me hey there's more in here that we're supposed to do together and so on tuesday when i got back into the office our day off is monday got back in i was like i knew that there was something in these texts and so this week and probably next week Maybe the week after, we'll see. We're going to dig around in these words. You ever had a magnifying glass, you pass over something, and then the words right in the center get really big, and the things around it get really small? It was just like that, and I knew that, hey, there's something in here for us. So let's read it together. Verse 3 says, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. So he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Picking up in verse 11, it was Full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. There is a powerful truth that Jesus is teaching us right here in this text, is that there are moments in our lives where we face a decision. That we have a choice that we have to make. Sometimes it's a moment, sometimes it's a season of decisioning. If it's a big decision, sometimes it might last... For months, you might be talking about relocating you might be in a relationship you're exploring marriage but it's a it's a it's a moment of decision and in that place of decision jesus speaks something to you and you have to choose whether or not you're going to obey you have to make a decision as to whether or not you're going to let him be the boss of your life and if we choose to obey if we're willing in the moment to say yes lord then our lives end up producing a divine outcome instead of a human result the human result in this story is fishing all night and you got nothing to show for it jesus didn't give them a bigger boat although i would have liked that part of the story a little bit better if he had done that he didn't give them a bigger boat He didn't give them more technologically advanced equipment. He didn't give them a training or some teaching, although all of that is important. Come on, at some times in life, the only thing that he did was he gave them a command. And they had to decide, will we do what he says or not? You know that they were tired. You know that they were weary. You know that they were doubtful. You know that they were uncertain. It's why all those details are given to us that they've been fishing all night and had nothing to show for it. But in that moment, they chose to obey and they went from getting a human result to a divine outcome. A divine outcome often necessitates human effort, but a human effort will only produce a divine outcome when it's in response to a sovereign command. Let me say that again. A divine outcome often necessitates a human effort. But a human effort will only produce a divine outcome when it's in response to a sovereign command. So I went on my first missions trip. In the summer of 1991, we went down to Belize. We were there for 10 days. We did a war refugee camp for El Salvadorians. It was the summer after I had become a, a follower of Christ in that December of 1990. Come on, if you've never been on a foreign mission trip before, it should be on your radar. It will shape your heart in ways that nothing else will. So if you, it's not too late to probably connect with Peru. If you want, if you want to talk about that, Warren, raise your hand. There's a trip going to Peru in, in April. And so we were, we were on that trip, and, we, and one of the things that happens on those trips is you build friendships for a lifetime. So we came back to the, to the States. There were three of us that, that, just, that began to meet together to pray on a regular basis, three guys. And so w- one of the guys was married, and he had a young son. His name was his Caleb, Caleb Adams, and he was about three years old. It was around Christmas time, So we're in the family room praying, and Caleb walks in, and he sees the Christmas tree. In all of its grandeur and glory, right? Glistening, calling, tempting. So Caleb walks over to the Christmas tree. And he sees this, you know, this, this uh, uh, Christmas ball on there. And he looks at his dad. And then he looks back at the Christmas ball. And then he looks at his dad. You know what he's looking for, right? He's looking for instruction. And his dad says, Caleb, don't touch the tree. Then we went back to talking, and Caleb, right, looks at the tree, looks at his dad, and then he does this. Without, he knows where the ball is, right? He doesn't even have to look. And he's putting his finger right on it, and he's staring down his father at three years old. Now, that didn't turn out so well for Caleb that day, right? So his dad, Chris, says, I'll be right back. And we, if you've been a parent, you all know what that turned out. For Caleb, right, he's learning an important lesson. He had a decision that he needed to make in that moment. We laugh at that story, but we do that to Jesus all the time. We do it to Jesus all the time. If we want our lives, it's a powerful picture for us, this idea, the detail, that it was so full, but it says that the net was not torn. The net is a metaphor for our humanity, that God wants our lives to accomplish more than what it's designed to do. That God wants our lives to accomplish more than what our natural giftings are. That God wants our influence in the world that we live in to be beyond whatever natural charisma that we have. He wants the fruit of our lives, the result of our lives, the outcome of our lives to far exceed what seems reasonable given the limitations of who we are as an individual. And the difference between a person that lives their whole life with no fish, tired and weary, and the person who has a divine outcome is not so much about those who are more gifted than others, it's those who have a heart that's willing to obey. If we are willing to say, Jesus, you are the boss of me, look out, your nets are going to be full of fish. Genesis 4, 6 through 7. It says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? why is your face so downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Right? Cain's upset because his offering was rejected by God. Abel's offering was accepted. So Cain, he's angry. He's jealous. We know that doesn't end up so well for either of them because Cain commits the first murder in the history of the world. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Listen to what God says to him. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. He's teaching Cain right here in the beginning of time, right? He doesn't say to Cain, Cain, have you read 1 John and James, right? Because he's not written those yet, but he's thinking that one day I am going to write those books, but I'm going to teach you the principle that you find in those verses even before I put it on paper. Come on, 1 John 4:4. greater is he who's within me than he that's in the world. Why is that there? It's to say to us that we are never Never with an excuse to disobey. It's always our choice. Always our choice. Paul wrote to the church of Corinth that no temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man, but will with the temptation always make a way to escape. Every single one of us, in every moment of disobedience, and we can find them in all of our lives, right? Every single one of those moments, we do not have the freedom to say, I could not help myself. God says you had a choice Choose well. James 4, 7, submit yourself to God, right? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He'll flee from you. So as I mentioned before, I made a decision to become a Christ follower in December of 1990. And so because I had lived a pretty raucous life, I knew that, that one of the things that was going to be important for me to sort myself out was that I made a commitment that, that I wasn't going to be uh, involved in any romantic relationships for an entire year. An entire year, Right? Because I thought that was a really long time, a year. So you know what I'm thinking, right? By the time December of 1991 rolls around, I'm like, come on, here we go, right? The person that God has for me, I'm going to meet them, and we're going to begin our life together. And so December of 1991 rolls around, then December of 1992 rolls around, 93, 94, 95, right? The summer of 96, I'm speaking. If you're a young person here tonight and you're not married, listen to what I'm saying. Do not settle don't settle. You might feel like God is asking you to wait longer than what is reasonable. He does not make mistakes. He does not make mistakes. And all during those years, right, I could have been one of those people, and we've seen friends do it. We've seen people in the world do it. They just say, you know what? I've waited long enough, and we launch out on our own, and we end up with a human result when what we wanted was a divine outcome. In our waiting, in our relationships, right? And then in the summer of 1996, I got a phone call from my sister, right? I'm 29 years old. You're not looking for your sister to help you out. So she says, hey, you've got to meet this young lady. She works at the law office where mom works. She's only there for the summer as an internship. She's a senior at William & Mary, and then she's going to be going back for her senior year. So I know you don't want me to be involved in this area of your life, but I'm telling you, she is an amazing person. She's so full of life. You've got to meet her. So I gathered up. We had a homeless ministry that we ran at the time, and so that attorney was a Christian attorney. He let us use all of his office equipment for free, and so I went there to the office under the guise of having to make some copies, right? So while I was there, I said, hey, I heard that there's an intern here that had spent some time at NISOM. That was a place where God had really intersected my life a couple of summers late after the Bailey's trip about being involved in urban ministry, and she had spent a summer there. And so, right, that was my, you're looking for the end, right, because you don't want to, you, 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 you know, because if you're not interested, you need to have an out, right? So my, my interest, right, in young people, right, you should take notes for that too, right? So my, so my interest, my expressed interest was the, 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 the missions trip. And, and so I was heading up the stairs. She was coming down the stairs. Come on, the rest is history. We met that summer. We were engaged in November, married in May, the weekend after she graduated from college. Come on. And she's the love of my life. It's a divine outcome. Listen, I'm telling you that story because for some of you here, you're in a season of decisioning. And I'm telling you, disobedience has the same outcome Every time, it's just as if you've been working all night and you've got nothing to show for it. It's a miserable place to be. You wait, you hear God's voice, you act upon it, you say, yes, God, you're the boss of me, whether it's acting or whether it's waiting, whether it's in church, and ministry, or choosing someone that you're going to spend the rest of your life with. You trust your life to the one who does not make mistakes he knows he always has our best interest at heart in the same way this was the big idea that we unpacked for the last couple of weeks in the same way the devil wants us emotionally damaged so we'll be functionally disabled if you want to learn about that you can hear about that in the last couple of weeks in the podcast this is the one we're going to be unpacking over the next few weeks he seeks to diminish our destinies by making us willfully disobedient He seeks to diminish our destinies by making us willfully disobedient because he understands this principle. The difference between a human result and a divine outcome is a moment of obedience. And so here in Ephesians 4.27, which is our life verse, where where, where Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, do not give the devil a foothold. Don't give him a foothold. The context of his teaching there in Ephesians 4 is dealing with anger, but that's just the particular sin he's speaking to, but the principle casts itself over every other area of our life. I mean, in your Bible, it might say, don't give him a place. In the Greek, it's topos, which gives us the word topography. The devil knows that he does not necessarily have to sweep you away into extremes. Nobody in this room is going to wake up tomorrow and become a Satanist who's interested in occult practices of human sacrifice, Right? If you are, please, you're scaring us. Now, see, you're with me? You're not going to wake up tomorrow and go on this rampage of extreme living. That, most, that's not what happens to most people. He just wants a foothold. He just, if he can't drag you to hell, his next plan is to diminish your destiny. And the way that he diminishes your destiny is by causing your will to be inclined to willful disobedience. It's my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. When I want to do it, maybe in just certain areas of your life. Because he understands that if he can get your heart to begin to act that way towards Christ, you might not become this extreme rebel. But what will happen is that your life will begin to produce a human result instead of a divine outcome. And you will not have the impact in this world that you were called to have obedience is the difference between a human result and a divine outcome and we want to be a church that makes your heart tender towards god tender towards god so that your life can have the biggest splash in this world that it's supposed to have so we're going to spend our time tonight and over the the next couple of weeks talking about different kinds of obedience that you disobedience that you find in scripture different kinds of disobedience the first one is this habitual disobedience habitual disobedience so our text begins here in Acts 7, verse 57, and then 8 through 3. I'm going to actually read it because I couldn't fit it all on the screen. So let me pick up here. It's Acts 7, 57. Acts 7, 57. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. It says, Then they screamed at the top of their voices. They stopped their ears, and they rushed together against them. This is a story of Stephen, the first Christian martyr in the history of the church, it says, they threw him out of the city, and they began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They were stoning Stephen as, they call, as he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, do not charge them with this sin. Can you imagine having that kind of grace towards other people? And saying this, he fell asleep, which we know it means that he died. says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles, those were the original 12, all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. But devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church And he would enter house after house and drag off men and women and put them in prison. Now, the fascinating part of this story is that Saul was just doing what he believed was right. He believed that God was on his side. Saul was one of the best and the brightest, and yet he could not have been more wrong. We read that story because we read it from this side of history. But if we had been there on that day, Saul was not a criminal. He was one of the most respected religious leaders of his day. He was one of the most respected spiritual teachers, one of the teachers of the Torah of his day for him to have the office that he held, he graduated, come on, with honors from whatever rabbinical training school that he had gone to. We've talked about this before as a church, right? All the young boys, they go away to the rabbinical training school, and they they have to memorize verse by verse the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five, verbatim, verse for verse. Then the rabbi pulls together, and he only keeps the best of the best. The others go, and they they learn their father's trade. Then the the next level of rabbinical training is they memorize the whole rest of the Old Testament, right? The New Testament didn't exist. The whole rest of it, verbatim, not even having a guarantee that they're going to make it. And then he takes the best of the best out of that, and they enter the third level, and then they spend years with that rabbi. And then at the end of that, still not all the people make it. He only picks the people that he feels can do what he does after he's gone. And Paul Saul then was one of those people that had been picked. He was one of the most respected, brightest people of his day. He was absolutely convinced that he was doing what was in the best interest of people and that he was acting on the orders of God himself. It's one of the reasons why habitual disobedience is so ugly because oftentimes people don't even know what they're doing is wrong. So I was talking with a pastor this week, area church, and they had a young lady who's recently made a decision for Christ, and she called up his wife because the, the pastor's wife helped to, to schedule the water baptisms and said, I want to get water baptized. And she was like, that's great. And she was telling her story of how she made a decision for Christ. And so she said, but I'm not, you know, I don't know whether or not you guys will baptize me or not, you know, because I'm a dancer. And so, right, the, the, the pastor's wife, being a, a little bit naive, said, oh, that's great. What ballet group are you a part of? And she said, oh, no, sweetie, I'm not that kind of dancer. So they've been on this journey, you know, with this young lady. She's a dancer in the same club that her mom was a dancer at. It's just the only life that she's ever known. The only life that she's ever known. And even though it's hard for us sometimes to get our brain around it, she's just, for the very first time in her life, coming into a realization, maybe the life that I'm living is wrong. It's not as though she was this rebellious person who just said, I'm going to go out. She just did what her mother taught her to do. And it's the life that she's been living. It's one of the reasons why we're going to get to the verse a little bit later this idea where Jesus says be careful how you judge. The ball field in the summertime or just at the basketball court, we saw it happen just this past season. There was a dad who was just publicly just belittling his son in front of everybody, and I wasn't there, Vanessa was telling me the story, but whenever I am there, right, my, I get, I want to go, right, punch that guy in the mouth, right, I get angry at him because of the child, but, but then once that emotion subsides, my heart breaks for the dad, you know why, because that's what his dad did to him when he was a kid, it's why habitual disobedience is such a scary thing, is that we just do, we just do what somebody else has taught us to do our whole life. What about people who have no concept for the idea of stewardship of their physical bodies? We're going to be teaching on that in a few weeks. Get ready, come on, we're stepping on some toes. Far too many people end up in heaven long before they're supposed to, only because they didn't take care of themselves like God instructed in this, in this, in this Bible. But for many people, for many people, it's not because they're just willfully giving themselves to gluttony. It's just, it's the only way of life they've ever known. It's a Saul moment. It's habitual disobedience. And one of the things that breaks that kind of disobedience in a person's life is divine revelation. We see it happen in Saul's life. Acts 9, 1 through 9, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and he requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, that's what Christianity was originally called, belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. And then the story keeps going. And if you're familiar with it, you know what happens. Jesus himself encounters Paul on the road to Damascus, and from that day forward, his life is changed forever. He's not Saul anymore. He becomes Paul. He gives us the vast majority of the New Testament. Jesus's question was, why do you kick against me? In the original language, it was the the word that was used was a a person that's, that's driving a cart they had a goad, a, a stick that they would use to, to, uh, to poke at the beast of burden that was, that was uh, pulling the cart, and, and the idea was, right, the beast of burden was to obey the prodding of the, of the master, and so that's the language that he approaches Saul with. So you're the beast of burden. I'm the master. Why aren't you doing what I'm telling you to do? And you know what Saul's thinking? Come on, I thought that I am doing what you wanted me to do. It's habitual Disobedience, But in that moment of revelation, all of a sudden he sees, all of a sudden he sees, I'm living a life of disobedience to my God. And it began a journey for him forever. Forever. That we're walking in the fruit of his life. Talk about a divine outcome. His story, his life, scripture that was given to us. We had dinner last night with some missionaries to, to China, Mike Kavanaugh, who came here in October the vice President of Elam Fellowship, the fellowship that we just associated with as a church. If you want to check it out, you can check it you can Google Elam Fellowship based out of Lima, New York, and one of his sons there. They, uh, they're, they're, uh, it's fantastic what they're doing there. They're going to cities all throughout China, cities where there are universities, and, they're, and they take missionaries, young people. They give a, a year of their life coming out of high school or coming out of college. They give a year to work as missionaries in one of those cities. It's fantastic, and, and people are making decisions to... Cr- christ by the scores they're baptizing him in the bathtubs the church has to be underground there right because it's illegal and he was telling this story last night that that one of the missionaries they were they were out just walking around and, and 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 they struck up a conversation with someone and they ended up you know sharing the gospel and right there in the marketplace the person makes a decision for christ and then all of a sudden right he has this this person has no frame of reference for script nothing never read a bible doesn't know anything about the church made a decision for Christ right there, and all of a sudden, at the top of his lungs, he has his eyes closed, in the middle of the marketplace, he starts shouting, I'm a new man, I'm a new man, I'm a new man. He didn't even know about the verses that talk about a new man. He didn't know anything about 2 Corinthians five seventeen. If any person's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, right? He just shouts it over and over. I'm a new man, I'm a new man. And then all of a sudden, he grabs his head, and he's going, he's cleaning my mind, he's cleaning my mind, he's cleaning my mind. Divine revelation divine revelation he didn't know anything about romans 12 right he didn't know anything about do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your of your mind it was just happening to him right there on the street right on the street divine revelation divine revelation it breaks the pattern of habitual disobedience in our lives like nothing else can psalm 139 7 I can never escape from your spirit. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. So in 1990, when I made that vow of devotion to become a follower of Christ, the church that I was going to, they were very active in, in missions, and, and uh, they had a, a theme that they were kicking off that, that year called a decade of harvest, right? From 1990 to to 2000, a decade of harvest, they had all of these goals, and the, and the tagline, the slogan for their, this initiative, this missions initiative, was, Till the Whole World Knows Jesus decade of harvest, and it was dot, 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 till the whole world knows Jesus. And so so I'm in that service, and it's during a worship set, and and and, and then all of a sudden, I just feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit to look up and, and just to start look at that banner. And I see that phrase, till the whole world knows Jesus, over and over and over again. And we're going to be teaching about this in the, the coming weeks, the this idea of spiritual language and why there's so much confusion about that. And there just shouldn't be. It's a beautiful thing that God wants to give to people. And so in that service, I feel like God gives me this phrase in a spiritual language that translate till the whole world knows jesus and i've been praying that phrase come on for more than 20 years just i'll be riding around in my car just praying and praying and praying until the whole world knows jesus till the whole world knows jesus but it was on that day it was on that day that god began to deal with my heart that the career that i was in was not the career that i was called to be in graduated from college and had a successful career and and and, and this is what habitual disobedience can be too sometimes it has nothing to do with morality sometimes it has nothing to do with morality It just has to do with giving your life to something that God didn't intend you to give it to. Sometimes you find yourself on a course of study in school, and the only reason you're on that course of study is because it's just what your parents told you that you were always going to do. And maybe that is what you're supposed to do, but maybe it's not. Maybe the job that you're in, the career that you've given yourself to, you're in that career because people around you when you were younger just said, This is what you should do, because maybe it's what your parents did or your parents' parents. And and maybe that is supposed to be. I'm not saying that everybody's supposed to go out tomorrow and quit their job and drop out of college. That's not what I'm saying, right? What I am saying, there should be a question that we ask God, am I living the life that I'm supposed to live? Am I pursuing the things that I'm supposed to pursue? So I enter into this conversation that night, right? I'm, I'm, I'm 20, 24, 24 years old. And God begins to speak to my heart, That speaks to my heart that, that I want you to give your life, to give your life for the whole world to know about Jesus. Now, that didn't happen for me until 1999. I didn't leave my job. It, it took time. Sometimes God gives you a vision for what your tomorrow is going to be, and then it's a journey to get there. The, qu- the question is, are we willing to do what he says and are we willing to wait for his goodness and his timing to play out? I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. We are going to be a presence-seeking church where revelation breaks the pattern of habitual disobedience in our lives going to invite the worship team to to come back because we're going to worship a little bit i'm going to read a little bit more but i want to talk about this as they're coming up listen talking with a pastor recently and he he shared with me that they they said the question they ask themselves every weekend when they're planning their services is how is church going to be fun then there's nothing wrong with that because that's i really think that's what god's asked them to do and they're experiencing incredible fruit from their ministry incredible fruit from their ministry but that's not the question god's asking us to ask you with me? The question that we ask ourselves as a church leadership team is how, how can we, how can we, as limited as we are, awaken people to the living presence of the creator of the universe? He is alive and speaking and wants to do things in our lives that are unexplainable. It's why we worship the way we worship. It's why we're expressive. It's why we, 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 we want to bring meat from the pulpit. It's why we're doing the things that we're doing, Go after, going after this neighborhood in Newport News and the one we're going after in Williamsburg. We believe that God is a living God. And yes, there needs to be discipleship. Yes, there needs to be teaching. Yes, there needs to be mentoring. Yes, there needs to be instruction. But you better believe all of that, all of that, without people experiencing the living presence of the creator of the universe, your life will fall short. There are things that he speaks to you that no one else can speak. There are things that he can do in your life that no one else can do. There are ways that he wants to move inside of you in here, whether it's habitual disobedience that needs to be broken or something else in your life. He is the sovereign creator of the universe. He is supernatural. He is not of this world, even though he created it, but you better believe he can get into it. And while he is, he can impact you along the way in a deeply personal way. Luke chapter five. It says, as the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Genesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee. He Said he saw two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats which belonged to Simon and he asked him to put out a little bit from the land and then he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat when he had finished speaking he said to Simon, hey put out why don't you put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch master Simon replied we've worked hard all night and we've caught nothing this story sounds vaguely familiar doesn't it It's, it's about three years prior from the one that we just read but at your word, oh come on But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they did this, they caught a great number of fish. And their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Stand with me. So here's Jesus. Three years later, he's on the shore. As Christy said, he's cooked breakfast for his friends. And he says to them, hey, why don't you let down your nets? Oh, you know all the people in that boat. You know what they thought of? That sounds vaguely familiar. We know what that's about. Because Jesus was trying to reconnect them as he was launching them into birthing Christianity. Come on, Christianity is being born. It's the delivery room in history for Christianity. He wants them to understand something incredibly important. That if they want a divine outcome, if they want a divine outcome, they've got to be willing to obey. If not, they're just going to end up with a human result. So Father, we stand before you tonight and we say each of us in our own way, in our own way, be the boss of me. Be the boss of me. We do not want to give the devil a foothold in our lives. We refuse tonight to allow him to diminish our destinies by continually making us willfully disobedient. That we want to be a people who has a heart that's soft to you, that's tender to you. Because like Habakkuk said, we want your fame to be made known in our lifetime, in our city, in our families. And we know sometimes, God, you're going to move in those ways just because it's who you are. But there will be other times that you will only move in those ways if we are willing to obey. Have your way with us. So I'm just going to encourage you tonight as we sing this song together. Come on, we've got a few minutes here. As we sing this song together, if you're in a place in your life where you're struggling with willful disobedience. I know it takes courage. I'm just going to ask you to come and find a place at this altar. Just come find a place. If you're scheduled for prayer, I'm going to ask that you come on up. You might want someone to pray with. You might not want someone to pray with. You might just want to come on your own. It might be that, that one of the things that we talked about tonight struck a chord with you. I'm, I'm telling you, come on. If you feel God tugging at your heart, you might not even know why he is. Come on, just trust him. It might be that you're going to find him on the road of your Damascus tonight. Your road to Damascus just might be from where you're sitting to where I'm standing. It might be that you're here tonight and you have no idea why God is prompting your heart to come. I'm just telling you, it could just be a simple matter of God is teaching you to obey his instruction. You might not have a reason that you're coming. You might not have something you're struggling with. But I'm telling you, in those those moments, if you're just willing to follow his prompting, he's preparing your heart. He's He's letting you practice tonight, come on, to say yes to him for when it really counts. Come on, let's worship together.